Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming along to, to this, uh, this special lecture this morning, special talk this morning. It's really my pleasure to, uh, to introduce Sancho Chakravorty, who's a professor of geography and urban studies at Temple University in the wonderful city of Philadelphia, which I had the pleasure, pleasure to visit earlier on this year, and uh, which we were just talking about. It sim- sim- has similarities to Brisbane. Twin. Uh, twin, yes, we're, we're coming up with a twinning agreement, I think, soon. <laughs> Sancho's written on urbanization, industrialization, income distribution, land, and so on. Um, he has an, an incredibly enviable publication record, I have to say, uh, write, and writing across a whole number of different subjects and topics. Um, he's got his recent books include a book on the price of land, uh, and also this forthcoming book uh, on the other one, Sand Indians in America, out in, in October. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to, to seeing that out and reading it. And I, I'm extremely jealous to see that you've published a novel as well, called The Promoted in 2015. And you're now working on a book uh, about um, uh, India invented and unknown as well. So without further ado, then, I think I'll, uh, I'll let you uh, get into the talk. So thanks very much for coming. Thank you, Ian, and, and thank you all for, for uh, letting me speak here. And I, I'm, I've been traveling for a few days, so I'm not quite, uh, I thought I was not quite academically attired, but I'm glad to see that I fit right in. And, and thank goodness for us social science types. What I'm going to talk about today is, is a book that uh, uh, my co-authors, Devesh Kapoor, who's a political scientist, and Nirvikar Singh, who's an economist. Um, and I have... Uh, uh, put together. It's uh, more a tome than a book. It's probably going to end up somewhere around 550-600 pages. Three authors. <laughs> you can't stop us. And what this book is about is what the, the title says. I want to start you off with, uh, in some ways, what is the, the, the defining graphic that we have tried to unpack in this book. Uh, this is in America, the x-axis is the share with graduate or professional degrees. And on the y-axis is family income in US dollars. And all these different countries are, you know, the, the dots represent the size of the population in the US. And as you can see, Indians are by far the most educated and by far the highest income group in the US. And this includes all subgroups all races, all national origins. This, we believe, is quite extraordinary. And what I'm going to try to do is try to explain that a little bit. The, the motivation behind this book is twofold. One is the recent massive growth in Indians in America. In 2014, which is the last year we have data for, India was the source of the largest number of new immigrants to the U.S., more than Mexico, actually. More than China, more than the Philippines, more than any other country. And at 2.2 million people who were born in India, it is the second largest immigrant group in the U.S., second only to Mexicans. In 1990, Indians were not even in the top 10. Right now, they are the second largest. So a massive shift has taken place. And what, what caused this, this very large change? And as I just showed in, in the previous graphic, the Indians are the most educated and highest income group. 
And this from the country of the ambassador car, right? How did a population from a developing nation with rather low levels of human capital become this kind of very specialized high income group in the US? We believe that this is the first comprehensive data-driven analytical uh, study of Indians in America. There is a literature out there. That literature tends to be, at this moment, dominated by humanities scholars who are, by training, of course, you know, not data-oriented. And they tend to pick uh, smaller stories, more uh, specific, more uh, narrowly focused uh, material. Unfortunately also, and I'm just going to say this, and you can do whatever you want with it, they tend also to be a little more, how shall I put it, judgmental than analytical. And uh, as a result, one of the things that this literature has tried to do, and it's, it's a grave mistake, I believe, is to fit Indians into the existing kind of racial categories of the and there is, you know, as in Australia, a kind of a racial categorical system. And we believe that that is a, a completely wrong thing to do. You know, the previous graphic, if nothing else, tells you why. I mean, you can go back over here, and this is the U.S. total in terms of education. Seven and a half percent or so with graduate degrees. And family incomes, you know, around $57,000. And there are Indians with around $110,000 family income and close to 40% with graduate degrees. African Americans to whom, in which club, uh, more, many humanities scholars try to place Indians are actually further down. And I'm going to show you later where, where they are. There is not a lot that is in common. For, for different epistemological reasons, I, we understand why this line of argumentation would be taken. We believe that it is far more important, at least from an Indian perspective, is to understand the diversity of India as a place of origin. That, you know, Tamils and Telugus and Punjabis and Gujaratis and Bengalis, they are different. And they remain different in India, in, in the US. And what we take, the approach we take, is to unpack the Indians, not to fit them into the existing racial categories of the West, but to say they come with certain cultural identities, they come with certain economic propensities, and we do a fair bit of that. So we, this is not only comprehensive, this is different orientation, and it's heavily data-driven. We try not to make a single claim that we cannot back up with, with data. There's a wealth of data in the U.S. Census and other sources which, surprisingly enough, simply hasn't been unpacked before. We don't understand why, why that is, but it hasn't been unpacked before. So th this is uh, what the book is. Uh, by the way, it's coming out from Oxford in, uh, they told us October 2nd, so we'll see actually when it happens. So these are, are the different chapters of the book. What I'm going to talk about today comes only in these two, chapters two and three and doesn't cover the whole material. It's a big book, as you can imagine. So I'm going to cover what I think might be interesting to you. By the way, please ask questions at any moment. So our first answer is why. Why this extraordinarily high income and extraordinarily high 
levels of education? And the answer isn't very difficult to find. It's, it's a selection process, right? All, most immigration is some form of selection, right? Anybody and everybody can't make the international transition. In here, we, we're calling this a triple selection. The, the first selection is in India. The first two selections are in India. The, the first selection, of course, is India's own inequality, right? The social hierarchies and discriminations that selected some groups for education, the, the high and dominant castes. To give you an example, considering the highest kind of social groups in India, that comprise about 3% of India's population, make up over 45% of the population of Indians in the US. So the 3% group of high caste, dominant caste people becomes 45% in the US. And the lowest groups, the, the Adivasis, the Dalits, um, Muslims, minorities, that comprise over 30% of the population of, of India, make up, we think, just about 1.5% of Indians in the US. So there's a huge sorting that's taking place in India first. And this we know very well, right? the, the sorting in India. There's a second sorting that takes place in India, which is the access to higher education. Right? For the longest time, you know, seats were rationed, heavily rationed. And there was a pretty intense kind of examination-based system to get those rationed seats, rationed and subsidized seats. That rationing is less intense now, there, and, and I'm going to talk more about how the growth of higher education has affected this. But it is still pretty intense. Even now, only 6% of the eligible pool, that is 18 to 23-year-olds in the US, in India, 18 to 23-year-olds who could be in college, are in uh, what are called STEM fields in the US. I don't know whether you use that term over here, uh, science, technology, engineering, maths. And then there is the third selection, which is the one that's done by the Immigration and Naturalization Service of, of the U.S., which selects from within this doubly selected pool and has created an extraordinary pipeline of engineering and science graduates from India into the U.S. So much so that right now, between one-tenth and a quarter of some fields in the US are entirely made up of Indian graduates. Uh, electrical engineering, computer engineering, botany, computer science are just some examples of the entire body of graduates in these disciplines were born in India. These are people who are working in the US who are born in India. There are 90,000 plus India-born PhD holders in the US. We, we believe that in terms of uh, the size and quality of this pool, it is so much further ahead of what is in India right now that really the higher education talent pool of Indians is in the U.S. This has extraordinary policy implications, which we've tried to communicate to different ministries of the government of India, not with much success so far, I, I have to say. We're discovering certain biases in thinking in the mandarins of Delhi and uh, my political scientist colleague, Devish Kapoor, is not surprised by that. I am a little bit more than, uh, he's dealt with this more than I am. Uh, so we have this triple selection, and what we call a selection plus effect, which are these, <coughs> shall we say, cultural characteristics, cultural norms, that add to the advantages of being an already selected group. One of which is the Indian propensity to live in married couple households. I'm going to show you the data later on. We are by far the most 
married people on earth. We stay married despite good reasons not to. What, what it does in terms of income, though, is keeps poverty levels extraordinarily low. And I'll show you in just a few moments what that works out. And also, there are linguistic and professional networks that, that develop. Gujaratis in the hotel and motel industries is actually very well known. It is not just Gujarat, it's a Patel, it's actually a clan network. Even more than, it's a linguistic and inside the language because it's a clan network. That have their own banking system, their own lending practices, they have, and they basically, depending on how you count, probably account for certainly more than 50%, perhaps as much as 70% of the hotel industry of the US right now. There are Telugu and Tamil workers in the IT industry, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about them. This is much less known right now because this is such an emerging phenomenon. There are IIT engineers, Malayali nurses, Bengali academics, even low-income groups, you know, Punjabi taxi drivers. I've been in I'm going to say about 15 taxi rides so far in Australia. All but one was a Punjabi taxi driver. So this is an international phenomenon. But there is a fair bit of you know, bonding social capital that is generated in this particular industry. I'm not going to talk much further about it, I mean, because there's a limit to what I can talk about today. And there are uh, some professional subgroups without kinship or linguistic especially of doctors and, and engineers, that nonetheless were Indian. So their organizational structure first had the profession and Indian as co-equal components in organizing. And so these selection plus effects have to be considered in, within larger kind of frameworks. One is this major technological change, the communication revolution, the IT revolution. Computer revolution, you call, call it what you will, you know, that basically has restructured um, global production networks, that has continues to restructure where things are made, where value is added, who does what to add value. And, and this restructuring process at a global scale has Indians really embedded firmly at the, at the center of it in very interesting ways. There were very significant policy changes that adapted to this. You can call it a shock. Uh, economists would call it a shock in the market, a technological shock. So on the demand side policies, the most important has been the H-1B and L-1 visa programs that the U.S. Congress created. And it can easily be argued, as some people have, that these programs are really Indian visa programs. Uh, the H-1B visa, which really is, can be considered the computer visa, is because half of all such visas go to Indians. The rest of the world gets the other half, less than the other half, actually. And they're pretty much all in the IT sector. So this pipeline was laid deliberately. And on the supply side, and this is also you know, relatively less studied at this point, is the growth of higher education in India, primarily the mushrooming of engineering colleges in South India. So in 1960, you know, 85% of all engineering seats were in public institutions. By 2006, 85% of all engineering seats were in private institutions in India. It's, 
is a massive turnaround. And right now, these the 85% could be closer to 90%. By 2014, about 650,000 graduates were being created in India in the STEM fields who could work for the IT industry, who do end up, most of them, working for the IT industry. Not necessarily in the US, but globally and in India. This orientation to South India has distinct effects in, in the US. I don't want to keep you in suspense, but for the longest time, the story of Indians in America was a story of Gujaratis and Punjabis. That story is over. The story of Indians in America is of Telugus first and Tamils next. And I shall show you how extraordinarily different the numbers are. And of course there's randomness. In any evolutionary process, there's, there's randomness. There was the Y2K problem. Remember that? And that was actually, uh, it never became a problem. And it's like, you know, terrorism attempts thwarted, you know, and never make the news. It never became a problem mainly because of the imp imported Indian labor that began in the mid 1990s to the US that basically set this pipeline in motion. And I would have to say the rather skilled performance in leveraging wage differentials by firms like TCS and Infosys, uh, which have become you know, global giants. I read in yesterday's Times of India that TCS apparently is one of the top 100 high-value firms or uh, publicly recognizable firms in the U.S., which I don't believe, honestly. But, but the fact that you know, somebody would stand up and make this claim make, make, makes it interesting. So the stylized facts of this, so Indians are entering the U.S. in unprecedented numbers. A hundred years ago, they were entering at the rate of less than 300 a year. Right now, they're entering at the rate of more than 350 a day. These are skilled people. Almost every one of them has a college degree when they enter, except one or two subgroups. A very large chunk of them get graduate degrees pretty soon. The ones that don't have college degrees, about you know, eight to ten thousand, uh, probably a little less than that, actually get their undergraduate degree in the U.S. And these new entrants are different. They speak different languages. They live in different places. They do different work. It's a new Indian American is is being created by by this process. I'm going to show you some data. So from 1870 to 2010, there are different categories of how Indians are defined. This is the one that we use, the Indian by race. This includes, I shall show you in just a moment, I'm sorry, this one. The three categories of Indians in America, people who are born in India, that's about 60% of the population. People who are born in the US of Indian parents, so they racially define themselves as Indian. And people who are born elsewhere, and when we began this analysis, we thought they were like, you know, the Ugandans, you know, the, the people kicked out by Idi Amin and, and people moving from UK. Uh, as it turns out, it's, it's a lot of Bangladeshis and Pakistanis. Uh, one of the remarkable side stories, which we don't follow up as much as we should, but there's a dissertation in it. Uh, fully 40% of Bangladeshis in the US claim to be Indian by race. Fully 20% of Pakistanis in the US claim to be Indian by race. We don't fully understand what's going on over here. There is something to do with the status of the Indian category in the US. It's much higher status. Could it be religion? Oh, wait, is it a partition? 
No, no, there are, there are no old people. There are no old Indians in, in the U.S. These are all young people. In, in fact, people over 50 that are Indians or children of Indians are less than 50,000 in the U.S. So this, you know, the Bobby Jindal, um, the governors, the, the comedians, the, the faces uh, that we know that are on TV, uh, that are famous people, they come from a very tiny pool. So it's not, that was our first thing. It's partition. No, it isn't. It's, it's an identity game being played, which we, you know, we don't fully understand. We, we didn't go into it. Indians, people who are born in India, are broken up this way. These are the data from 2012. And you can see Gujaratis were 15% and Telugus were 13% in 2012. And we wrote then that the way, rate at which uh, the population is changing Telugu is going to soon, in the next three, four years, replace Gujarati as the second language. And Tamil is going to replace Punjabi as the third language, fourth language. And the latest data are out, which I'm not showing over here, which we kind of footnoted in the book. Telugus have overtaken Gujaratis. They are the second language of Indians in the U.S. now. And Tamils have overtaken Punjabis. And this very significant linguistic realignment of Indians in America is, is going on at a pretty rapid pace. We divide the arrivals of Indians in America into three phases. The early movers phase from 1965 to 1979. 1965 is an important year. It is the year in which the U.S. The government basically abandoned a long-held racial immigration system, racialized immigration system with one that was significantly deracialized and significantly more skills-oriented. I mean, this, this was a pretty significant transition. Uh, it's called the Heart Seller Act. And at that point, the Secretary of State then asked by Congress, so how many peoples of different countries do you expect are going to show up as a result of this? I, I believe the number he used for Indians was around Five to 8,000. It is close to 150,000 per year right now. Uh, people had no idea what the opening of the door would lead to. What we don't understand is that the early movers were dominated by Gujaratis and Punjabis, which is what leads to the Gujarati and Punjabi story of India, existing one of Indians in America. Punjabis, we have a sense of uh, uh, the, the long tenure in the U.S. as, as farmers, really. And they remain fairly dominantly, even now, a farming community. Gujaratis, we don't understand why they would be the first to pick up the signal of an open door 10,000 miles away. I don't think it is explained by, oh, Gujaratis have always been migrants, because so have Tamils, so have Malayalis, so have Bengalis. Yet they picked up the signal. There must have been some institutional link-ups. Uh, we are convinced <coughs> of it. There must have been institutions in Ahmedabad, in Gujarat, that were linked to institutions in the U.S. We've spoken to any number of Gujarati elders. They don't know either. So, so there's another little story out there waiting to be unpacked as to why that group would pick up the signal. This was a very, very accomplished group. 45% of this group, that's close to half of it, had professional or graduate degrees, had or soon acquired professional or graduate degrees. Lots of doctors. There are many, many doctors among these people. Then from the lull phase, what we call the lull phase, the families phase, 
this group started bringing the family members over using family reunification act and, and the propensity to bring those family members over who were less educated gujaratis brought their clan members punjabis brought their clan members they brought their village members um, there are stories of uh, single gujarati men who sponsored up to 50 people of to i've heard stories i don't know personally people have sponsored up to 100 people a single gujarati person these were not well educated people <coughs> a lot of them work in the hotel industry the motel industry uh, very rarely at the front desk at the, at the back end in the laundry room in the dining room cleaning up the the invisible work of you know low paid labor so because the first group were gujaratis and punjabis the second group which was families and clan were also gujaratis they were coming at the rate of 30000 per year the initial group was about 12000 a year then about 30000 a year and the third group the one we are in right now starting around 1995 initially it was about 65000 a year it's actually up close to 150000 a year right now specialized in it or other stem fields and dominated by telugus and tamils arrived in much larger numbers at 5 to 10 times the number of early movers and two to four times the rate of families and what you have is four distinct populations what this graph is of four populations the blue are indian born living in the us people who were born in india like me who are living in the us right now that's this group only 13 14% of them are less than 25 years old like migrants everywhere there are very few young people in this population close to 70% have a college degree or above it's just extraordinary we really don't know there people have said the migration of russian jews to israel may have had numbers like this the data aren't clear about it but we don't know of any other group that's ever done this and close to 70% of college degrees in about so that's one distinct population it really doesn't resemble any population anywhere else it doesn't resemble of course the home population that is the indian population in india this yellow greenish thing which is you know close to half of it is less than 25 years old less than 8% of whom have college degrees it doesn't replace the american population in america who are more than a third less than 25 years old and less than 20% of whom have college degrees it doesn't resemble their own children who are pretty much this group still in school six out of seven or seven out of eight are basically still students we haven't really seen the second generation yet come alive we just think we have but we haven't this huge cohort is about to beginning to trickle into the professions and working life we've seen nothing yet i mean this group is is coming so what we do is for the most part we talk about the blue the blue this is what we seek to understand people who are born in india who are right now in the us and to a lesser extent we seek to understand the orange group the children that were born of the people who were born in india i'm going to focus mostly on on the blue group here and any questions up to yes sir most of these who have their high education from india or the 
most will have their college degrees from India. About 90% have their college degrees from India. Their first degrees. I'm sorry? Their first degrees. Their first degrees. That's the point. A huge bunch of them get a second degree in the US, the graduate degree. There are very few people with graduate degrees from India that are in the US. So that the post-college degree is really an American phenomenon. So the 90,000 PhD holders, Indian PhD holders, I don't know the number, I could figure it out. Uh, I'm going to say maybe 89,000 got their PhDs in the US. But they orange column, if you follow up that data, will the US policy now on Asian population setting really high standard for the college entry uh, for this group? Would that affect the college that's an interesting question. The literature on this is of a regression to the mean, right? That you have a first kind of group that is high achieving, the second group will regress to the mean of the population that moved to, right? And we've investigated the regression to the mean idea. It, it simply doesn't hold up. If, if anything, it is actually overshooting the mean. So the second generation, from the data that we have, which are a little less robust because the numbers are small, is actually out-achieving the, the first generation. They are getting highly educated, no, absolutely no doubt about it. Their fields are changing. IT, engineering, is just dropping away. It's neuroscience, it's biology, it's botany, it's medicine, it's political science and economics. Pretty large numbers are actually going into our softer disciplines. Engineering is just very rapidly disappearing as, as a field of choice in, in the second generation. But there is actually no regression to the mean. And, and despite a literature, more kind of a media literature about, oh, barriers, Asian quotas, and all of that, the evidence doesn't seem to hold out that structurally that's, that's been successful. Uh, so, some institutions. Probably they are successful in keeping Asian quotas, but as a system, as a large system, the evidence is unclear that they are successful. Uh, just as a matter of interest, is there any evidence of any cultural divide between the highly educated born in the U.S. and highly educated coming into the U.S.? Is there any kind of elitism going on there? So two highly educated populations that are born in the U.S. and that are born in India. That's an interesting question. We didn't look into it, mainly because the born in the U.S. population that has come of age and is highly educated is rather on the small side. Anecdotally, there's, there's, there's lots of stories. I would think not, though. I mean... I ask that because of the, the comment about uh, the highly, uh, high clan unity that might exist, and does that exist across both uh, groups, or does it exist on... The Gujarati and Punjabi story are different. And I'm, if we have time, which I don't think we do, so maybe I'll, I'll just try to address it because I, I won't get it there. Because this is the per capita income by language in the US. Per capita income shared with postgraduate degrees. Look at this thing. We call the Indians the, the other 1%. That's because they make up about 1% of the US population. And it's a play on the 1% idea, right, of, of that, the elite. This group, Canada, Bengali, Telugu, Tamil, Marathi, 
this is way beyond the other 1%, right? The per capita incomes at around $70,000. This is a full US population of around $25,000. Almost three times higher. Three times higher. This is African American income. $15,000. Five times higher. You can't study this and that group together. It, it's ethically, morally unjustifiable. It's just the wrong thing to do. This is India as a whole, in, people born in India. Here are Gujaratis and here are Punjabis. I mean, Indians are widely differentiated by skill, by income. And because for the longest time this was the story of Indians in America, they didn't stand out. But since that is now the story of Indians in America, you are now beginning to see this everywhere, in the real estate market, in certain places in New Jersey, in California, in Silicon Valley, around Houston, around Washington, D.C. You are now seeing these really well-to-do Indians living in really big houses, driving really fancy cars, with a lot of money, sending their kids to the best schools who are in the pipeline for the most attractive, most lucrative professions and degrees. Very interesting data here. By the way, I'm an academic and from Bangladesh and I'm a Bengali. Bengali is on the very top. Mm -hmm. That is probably Bengali from the West Bengal. Yes, this is, uh, this is entirely people. Bengali is born in India, not Bangladesh. Yeah, but here you see the difference between these two. Yes. The entire population of Bangladesh is Bengali too. Yes. And the difference, uh, I, I just get it that the difference in income between Bengali in India and Bengali in Bangladesh. This is the selection story. This is the selections. I'm glad you, you brought it up. In, in a nutshell, this is it. I mean, there's nothing different between the two groups of Bengalis, right? They're, they have different religions, but they're basically the same people. Same music, same food, you know, same cultural practices. They're the same people. Yet the Bengalis that are Indian-born, that are going to the U.S., have gone through a higher education route. Engineering, medicine, and they go slot straight into the high-wage labor market of the U.S. The Bangladeshis are not in that route. They are not following that route of selection. They are much more akin to Punjabis, the family routes. They work in small stores, corner stores, little businesses, uh, a lot of kin uh, immigration, family uh, integration. This is the much more standard migration story. This is the Mexican migration story. This is the uh, Somali migration story. That is the extraordinary part of this election. Well, I mean, it's actually really surprising about this. I mean, because, I mean, the story of, of it isn't one of rags to riches, it's rich to rich. Mm -hmm. um, so, what actually is surprising in reality about the fact that, yes, you, your time was up there. I mean, you told us that the most graduates, I mean, if you want to tell a story about how well people do, for example, the US, shouldn't you be comparing, say, graduates with graduates from different countries? as opposed to simply the mass of people come from, say, Vietnam and the times, which, as you said already, there's a strong selection effect there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, we, we do actually do that. I'm not presenting that, that material over here. 
what distinguishes this particular, the last two decades of, of Indian immigrants is their very high level of education, of course, and also the STEM field. So one of the side stories, let, let me just side for a moment. So while you're doing this, one of the things we discovered, look at this top half of the income earners. There are a couple of oddballs in here, right? This Zambia is there, and South Africa, right? I mean, India is the oddest, actually, but and they would think India is the oldest if I were Zambian and say, how come India is so on top over there? So what's the Zambia and South Africa story? We, we, we looked a little bit into it. So Zambia is 99% African, black, and 1% white and other groups. Zambians in the U.S., however, is 90% white. South Africa is 90 black, 10 white, South Africans in the U.S. are 90 white, 10 black. So the selection process is certainly racialized in, in, for Africa. But for Indians, it is the selection on STEM fields, which are the high-wage fields, that distinguishes it, I think, from most other populations. And we do do a comparison of, of the graduates of, of, of different countries. <clears throat> what also distinguishes India right now is the sheer size of the labor force that's coming. These other things are kind of dots, little, 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 I mean, it's tiny populations coming in. India, it's a flood. I mean, 150,000 a year. And that's massive, right? I mean, in Australian terms, that would be greater than the sum of all immigrants coming in a single year, somewhere in that range. 189,000. 189,000. So close to pretty much all the immigrants that are coming. So yes, what stands out is a bunch of things, but also the nature of the degree itself, the, the specific qualifications which enables them to participate in the highest end of the American labor market. Since we're out of time, I'm going to end with, this is the female-headed households here. Indians. Other people, Chinese, Taiwanese, Philippines, white and black. There's a huge family structure story going on over here. The marriedness of Indians. There's a geography of patriarchy, by the way. We are married as are Bhutanese, Nepalese, Bangladeshis, Pakistanis, Sri Lankans. South Asians tend to be married. East Asians tend to be less married. But they tend to be much more female, the population in the US. West Asians are very male and not married. It's, it's very interesting how West Asia, East Asia, and South Asia form these three different blocks, which <coughs> speaks of a kind of a cultural continuity across national boundaries. So the language groups by industry. Here is the all-Indian-born distribution, right? 3% of all Indians work in the transportation sector. 15% of Punjabis do. Rest of the other people, not really. So Punjabis are taxi drivers. It's a stereotype, and here's the data for the stereotype. Entertainment, which includes hotels, motels, um, corner shops, and so on. <coughs> About 6% of all the Indians are in Madrid. 12% of Gujaratis are in Madrid. 
the others this is the the post this is the this is the new group not really education a little less than 5% of all the indians are in education over 20% of bengalis are in education once again a stereotype that just kind of the data go bang and hit the stereotype right but punjabis gujaratis no not really financiers let's go to professional services the big one professional services is computer services if you unpack that 99% of this is computer services a quarter of all indians work in computers if you actually include management and so on about a third of all indians work in computers punjabis not so much Over 40%. I mean, this is a big kind of structural, occupational, educational shift that taking place. Yeah. This leads to the income story, and we end with kind of two questions. One of the reviewers brought up: um, Does this linguistic cleavage by income and education effectively fragment the Indian American identity? And the question we answered with another question how cohesive is indian american identity to begin with uh, these are people who speak different languages eat different foods live in different places work in different occupations uh, the punjabi farmer in california has very little exposure to the telugu it worker in silicon valley the punjabi taxi driver in new york has very little exposure to the it worker in gujarati or tamil or telugu it worker in in new jersey this community is a, i mean there there are two metaphors used for immigrants in the the melting pot metaphor how all of it melts together and the salad bowl metaphor and one could say those two should apply to india too i mean there's such a diversity in india but it's clear in india it's a salad bowl right i mean the, the, the different states are virtually monolingual right Tamil Nadu is 95% Tamil speakers. West Bengal is over 90% Bengali speakers. There are some cities, Bombay, Bangalore, that are kind kind of little more of a melting pot. But Indians in America have always been a salad bowl. They haven't really mingled with each other. So every now and then they attend a Bengali cultural event. And a non-Bengali speaker over there, you won't find a Punjabi, a Tamil. If there is some intermarriage or oh, we marry ourselves also a lot right bengali hindus marry bengali hindus punjabi sikhs marry punjabi sikhs marry in clan in language we are a highly endogamous society and as long as that endogamy remains that social structure remains it is not a cohesive kind of There are pan-Indian organizations. They are professional, medicine and engineering. There, there are two ones. There's a one, probably a really recent successful one is one called the Indus Entrepreneurs. This one is basically in the IT field, trying to basically not only work in pan-Indian but pan-South Asian. So there are Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Sri Lankans who are part of it. This is a rarity. The doctors group is another one. It's a rarity. Will this cleavage is widen among the first gen cohorts to come and the second gen? Well, if the fresh blood 
keeps getting drawn from the old sources. Yes, they will widen. If the Telugus and Tamils come from engineering colleges, and Gujaratis and Punjabis come from clan networks, you know, kin networks, yes, the, the same process will continue. And the evidence right now is, that is, I, I was in Ahmedabad 10 days ago, 10 days ago. I gave a version of this talk. I gave two talks in Ahmedabad, two very different. There's a land thing I think I gave one of those talks. And I tap it. This one went like a bomb, right? And a whole kind of existential soul searching began in the room. What is wrong with us Gujaratis? Why can't we? Why are we falling behind? Why aren't our children getting educated? Why do we not value education? How can we reform our society? What will happen over the longer run? I mean, if, as long as the endogamic practices remain, things are not going to change. They, they just won't. But if exogamy begins, and there is very little evidence that it's happening yet, second generation Indians, once again, based on a relatively small data pool, are 88% marrying endogamously, marrying within language, clan, ethnic networks. Only 12% are. Among the first generation, it's 98% endogamy. In the second generation, it's 88% endogamy. The extent to which you know, these communities identify themselves as separate, not so much Indians as Gujarati first, or Punjabi or Bengali first, the cleavages will continue to widen. But the second generation cohort is going to be pretty large. And honestly, given the professional practices that are different, that they're choosing different careers, they're getting Americanized to some degree. We, we, honestly, we don't know what the long-term holds, but currently, if current trends continue, yes, it is a salad bowl of Indians in America. And I'm going to end over there and, and, and take, take questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.